Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. All right. All right. Good morning and welcome back to day two of the 2022 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Nahom Brahane, and I'm a first-year MBA student here at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce the panel on a finger roll where the basketball analytics goes next. Um, and for our panels today, I'll introduce Catherine Evans, Vice President, Research and Information Systems, Monumental Basketball, Kirk Goldsberry, MBA Analyst, ESPN, Allison Feaster, Vice President of Player Development and Organizational Growth, Boston Celtics, and Bob Vulgaris, former director of quantitative research and development, Dallas Mavericks. And our moderator for today is Kevin Arnovitz, senior writer, ESPN. And in, ter in terms of panel logistics, our panel will run for 45 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. And audience members are free to ask questions on Twitter with the hashtag on a finger roll. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Kevin. Cool. Um, you did a splendid job with the introduction, so I will, I will just get to it. Uh, I thought I'd start, since we're kind of oriented toward the future, with I dug up the research papers from 2012. Um, sort of, I went to the Wayback Machine, which is wonderful, like, amenity for the internet. Uh, here are a few. Positive and negative synergies in basketball. The authors created a skills plus minus framework to measure on-court chemistry in basketball. There was another one called Deconstructing the Rebound, with optical tracking data. This paper leverages stat sports view optical tracking data to deconstruct several previously hidden aspects of rebounding. A third was court vision. New spatial and visual analytics for the NBA. Quote, we propose a new way to quantify the shooting range of NBA players and present original methods that measure, chart, and reveal differences in NBA players' shooting abilities. That last one was Kirk's paper. <laughs> So, Ten years ago, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, let's, why don't you start? Uh, let's spin ahead. So we, we've had 10 years in the, uh, behind us. What do we most need to measure in basketball to understand, to prescribe sort of best practices, whether it's on the court, in drafting, whatever it is? Um, so, you know, what, what can't you do now that you'd like to do? Uh, in a word, biomechanics, and I'll plug my, my next talk at 11. I think this is obviously the future of our sport in terms of analytically evaluating and developing talent um, in men's and women's basketball. I think Bob will, Bob will know this too, and, and, and uh, I think Catherine and Allison, we steal from baseball, uh, and these pitching labs have taken over Major League Baseball in the last five to 10 years. Uh, and one of the things I'm going to argue later today is like, I built those shot charts in 2012. That was a big deal for me. And um, in 2022, is that now we're building the shot chart of the human body to understand the interactions between an athletes' movements uh, and their ability to execute specific skills on a reliable basis. And so the data in the 2020s in sports analytics, in my opinion, at least in part, are moving inside the athletes' bodies for the first time. Uh, and that's a big challenge for people in Boston or Dallas or Washington for us to understand that right now. So and I want to break this down because this is a common answer I got before the panel. I talked to a bunch of folks in the league. 
you know, who work with analytics, and I said, hey, I'm gonna ask you the question, I will ask the panel, and they all said biomechanics. And it took me a while as a layperson to kind of understand what it meant. I was like, does that mean, hey, raise your elbow, because at that angle or, or, or that level, you're better at shooting? Does that mean, hey, when you run around screens, you know, do it at this speed? Uh, Actually, you should slow down a little bit, even though it's counterintuitive. Like, what do you mean when you say biomechanics is going to lead the next kind of wave of analytics? Like, specifically? Well, every human being has, like, a unique kinematic strategy. We're all different. If Bob or Catherine or Allison shot a basketball or I shot a basketball, it would be different. And to try to sort of prescribe that everybody should be doing this the same way, that's, that's not correct. Um, and so one of the things biomechanics helps us to do is understand how a person moves his or her body uh, and how those movements influence, say, the flight of a basketball or the velocity of a baseball uh, or a baseball bat or a golf club where, where these applications are ahead. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau famously uses motion capture to help him understand how his body moves and how those movements help him hit the golf ball 400 yards. Um, so it's the why in a nutshell. It's why can Bryson hit the golf ball 400 yards? That's the big question, in my opinion, of sports analytics, at least in part in the 2020s. Why is Stefan good at this? Why is Russell not so good at this? You know, understanding that the atomic answer to those questions is often within the athletes' bodies themselves. Is this the top on your to-do list? I mean, it, it, the idea of, of, of the why is big, which is that we've gotten better and better at measuring outcomes, at measuring what was the probability that this shot went in, what were the, even the actions that created that good shot, everything on the court. But once that player is taking that shot, if we want to improve his shot, how do you actually do that? And we can go to the coaching staff and they'll be like, yeah, we worked on his shot. It's like, okay, well, what did you do? What actually changed? And is that repeatable moving forward? Because it's one thing to say, okay, we made a change with this player and his shot got better. His, percentage went up in the gym and in games. Okay, will it work next time? Will it work again? Will it work on a different player? I mean, that, that, that is the question. Like, how do you actually make a causal effect? Um, Allison, so this is my experience with players when I try to talk to them about analytics. Um, basically, my experience is that players in the NBA feel like they have too many voices in their ear, right? They're hearing it from every member of the coaching staff who wants to be their guy. They're hearing it from front office, which has a very specific idea of how you become a better basketball player. Um, the co head coach, the analytics department, the training staff, the sports science person. And so my experience is when you present them with a prescription, they're like, okay, it's not that, oh, they don't like analytics. They don't need another voice is kind of <clears throat> their view. So. How do you do this practically? Like they have some great information. Here's what we know. Right. Hey, person who got to this level doing what he did the way he does it, change all that. Yeah, I think it's number one, you don't want all those voices in a player's ear. Specifically during the season, you wanna really limit um, you know, the sources of, of information. I think equipping an analytics department to you know, liaise with the coaching staff, equip them with the proper language, to help a player um, grasp uh, certain concepts and, and the why behind certain tweaks in, in training, I think that's the key. Um, you don't want a, a, a random person coming up to a player and trying to tweak something in midseason when he may or may not be empowered by a coach. He or she may not be empowered by a coach. I mean, that requires patience, because let's say, I'll just use the Celtic, Marcus Smart. Right. right. All right, you don't want to bother him in the season, 
let's say the guy's shooting 29% from, I mean, player development happens in the season, right? Absolutely. It's one thing. And also, you have the benefit of five on five. Like, if you work, if the summer runs or the summer runs, but, like, what, are you going to work on the floor in July? I suppose. Yeah. But that seems kind of unambitious. You, Kevin, cannot, mm. as a, you know, data analyst, cannot go to Marcus and say, hey, Marcus, <laughs> your, your shot is jacked. Um, I <laughs> recommend talking to... Uh, the head coach first and foremost, and say, "Hey, we've noticed we've noticed this trend, or we see this uh, this this motion, and we think that if he does this, this, and this, he might, you know, have some more success, more accuracy shooting." Um, coach may or may not, you know, embrace that, uh, but I think that's the key. You can't. I wouldn't recommend going straight to a player. All right, Bob. Um, a is biomechanics would be on the top of your list. Is there something else? And sort of part two. What was your experience in Dallas? Sort of whether it was the coaches mediating directly with players, like, but take the first part first, I guess. I think the issue with biomechanics is, like the camera tracking data, you mentioned the stuff in 2012. When did the camera tracking data even come in? It started 2010. I think the, yeah. the full league adoption started 2013. Yeah, so the issue with the stuff they have now is there, it's, it's, you don't even have like the arms and limbs, so it's all just like center of mass. So like you need to have a special lab, like what Kirk's trying to do, where you can actually measure the movements of a player. Like when you see the camera tracking data, they're just blobs and dots moving around the court. Right. So there isn't, like the idea of biomechanics is great, but there's no data on that. So someone has to provide the data for them. Um, and then to Allison's point, yeah, like you definitely don't want people talking to, like in my experience, we never, we liaise, liaise on directly with the coaching staff. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there's very many situations where an analytics person's talking to individual players. Um, so just so I understand, so, to get somebody from a blob to something that approximates a human being with human motion, are we like sending them up to Vancouver at the EA thing where they put on the funny suit? Yes. Um, okay. That's that's exactly what we're doing, Kevin. Okay. And uh, and it sucks. It sucks for the athlete. It sucks for the analysts. But it's the only way to get accurate joint centers right now to do reliable biomechanical analysis. So, yes, the exact image of the EA, uh, the 2K studio. That's what you have in mind now. When we're here in five years, we're not going to be talking about that. Uh, it's a computer vision challenge. It's an arms race. Uh, these markers are going to go away, and we'll be left with reliable data sets uh, that we need to make sense out of. Um, so that's, that's going to be a real challenge for our domain. How good are y'all going to be at determining which players actually can improve from development? Are there players that won't be able to improve uh, utilizing this information, some more than others? Uh, that was something that a couple of analytics folks asked me. It's like, hey, first thing we need to do is actually identify the players that we think can really improve. There are certain players that will have the capacity, more capacity to improve, not for their mindset, but just the biomechanics itself. Right. I mean, presumably, like, I know everybody can always get better at anything. Um, but, yeah, and yes, like, I, I would imagine that you would eventually get to that point in the same way that, like, in medicine, we have a sense of certain types of diseases and certain types of, like, health problems and, like, is there a positive prognosis or not that's taken, like, a human lifetime or, a, like, human, um, like, humanity to figure that out. And even still, we're often not, you know, perfect about understanding which cancers we can recover from and not. Um, and so, like, yes, like, I would imagine eventually you can get to certain profiles for players to say like, well, this person looks a lot like, you know, this, this profile where yes, we believe they can improve their shooting versus no, we believe that they can't. But I mean, try go to a player and tell him he can't get better at shooting. All he's gonna do is try even harder. And, and I wanna make it clear, one thing we've been able to do early 
in this stuff with biomechanics to NBA teams is help identify injury risks that have nothing to do with development of a skill. For, I'll give you an example. So Ron Adams is one of the best sort of grumpy dudes in the NBA at Golden State. He'll start waving his hand around about how basketball used to be a two-footed sport. You watch John Wooden practices and everything was on two feet. And he said, one of the reasons everybody's getting hurt is we're moving to these one-legged moves. And I was like, I never thought about it in these terms, you know, but it's so true. And then if you look at a team like the Orlando Magic, you know, Jonathan Isaac, Markel Fultz, both tear their ACLs doing a Euro step, a move that really wasn't around uh, 30 years ago. There is a lot of this. One thing we're able to do with this kind of data set is watch a player in a gym do movements and flag them for, say, a scary amount of knee valgus on a Euro step before it actually snaps. Um, another thing we've seen is players with landing asymmetries. So if you've torn your ACL, um, chances are you don't land balanced for the rest of your playing career. You're, you're favoring a bad knee. And what happens then is you get tendonitis in the, in the good knee and your lower back because you're landing, Kevin, uh, asymmetrically every time you jump or take a shot. So the, it's not just about player development. It's also, I want to make sure we're talking about analyzing player movements for player health and well-being. Is that a job for a data analyst? You know, the, the lines are blurring very fast, aren't they? Um, I, always I think, I think this panel is evidence of, of look at our backgrounds. Uh, I don't know. I think... I mean, how, how do you know that that's going to lead to an ACL injury unless you have a lot of data on what ACL injuries look like? But it, which is why, like, there is all the data in there. It is healthcare data now instead of, like, specifically basketball data. But now there's a blending, and that's, like, that's sort of the sports science side of things. Right. Side of things, but it is still looking at a lot of data collected over many, 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 many years and many, many examples. Um, Part of the issue also is the there's no, with the NBA Players Association, there's no wearables that you're allowed to wear while you're playing. Yep. So like that's like the future of analytics if you can somehow convince players that it's in their benefit to be more healthy, etc. It's, it's the risk is is that you're going to be able to find out when a player is at more risk for injury or when a player isn't healthy, and I think that'll impact their contracts negatively. But it'll also give us more data to figure out exactly how to like, okay, this player is fatigued in the middle of the game, you can see what his heart rate is, you can see where he's at, where his rest is, heart rate variability, all these other things that you, the average citizen has because they're got like whoop or aura ring or whatever, but you're not allowed to actually have that while you're playing a sport, in the NBA at least. So Allison, I was actually gonna ask, um, I had a conversation with a player in Atlanta a few years ago when this stuff was sort of first, and the player said, this is creepy as shit. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, my employer is not going, how would you like it, you know, if your employer started, you know, kind of delving into your kind of personally physical matter. Like, like this is crazy. Um, it's a violation of privacy. It is exactly what you said. Like, what, some asshole's going to find out that, like, I have a bum, I've never had an injury, and now I'm not going to be paid 12, I'm going to be paid sure. 7. Yeah. Like, my experience is players are, like, profoundly skeptical about this technology, about their participation in this technology. Um, I imagine not with a shooting stroke, but the kind of stuff y'all are talking about now. Yeah, I mean, think about the private citizen. Like, would you yeah. want a wearable everywhere you, you know, go? Would you want, you know, your spouse or whatever to have a GPS on you? Or if you carry an iPhone, you know? already, I was <laughs> do you carry like, an iPhone with you? Know? Exactly. I know, but do you? Would you want someone knowing every piece of information about you, about your movements, about your whereabouts, about et cetera, et cetera. I, my answer would be no, and I don't think we can kind of separate a player, 
Um, a player is a human first and foremost, and a player um, maximizes his earnings, you know, through contracts. And you're right; this information is is sensitive. So, yeah. so what if it's controlled by the players' association? That's a different story. Yeah. Collectively bargained for yeah. sure. Which is like, what if it is the players and they all they're able to pool their information together, but it's just for them and the teams don't have access. That to makes it. more. That's sense. That's what I've always thought individual. is like how this would go. My thing was just using it in the middle of games, like <laughs> take it off after the game's over, do whatever you want. But like, it's not like there isn't a thousand cameras in the ceiling tracking everything you're doing while you're playing a basketball game, anyways. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to know when a player's fatigued? Why wouldn't you want to know when a player's? Because. Teams having teams, yeah. entities, organizations have a tendency to exploit. That's 100%. And we don't want to yeah, exploit yeah. players in that Yeah, way. let's be honest. The analytics community has failed. Uh, we have a trust issue in the it's NBA. It's not the analytics. I mean, come on, man. Like, none of these guys want to know. We're surveilling them, Bob. Like, Let me we ask are, you a question. we're collecting data. We're not telling them what we're looking sure. for. As Catherine says, a lot, this is skewing into the medical realm. It's yeah. gross. We're building models based on their you're the, you're, you're, But you're the one who's trying to predict when a player's going to get hurt or not. Yeah. Like, so here's the thing. I think... I just want to know if he's healthy in the middle of the game, if he's tired. No. That's all. One of the things if I'm passionate about... some other information from it, you would not. You would stop at the health aspect of it. What are you going to gleam in the middle of a game? No, I'm Seriously. saying in the middle of a game, yeah. potentially. But what, where does it stop? At, after the game is over. That's when it stops. You have to, we <laughs> you have take to, it off we have we're to get responsible in that way. the Allisons to help us build trust with the players. There's a new, I teach uh, sports analytics at UT and, and I used to teach Moneyball, now I teach the MVP machine. And Kevin, there's a chapter in there about uh, the conduit, the person who builds the relationship between the data uh, and the athlete. Uh, and that's a very important role. Um, and to this point, I would argue, Bob, is we, totally screwed that up. Sure. And, and very few NBA teams can get that line of communication from the, the front of the airplane to the, to the analytics group. It just doesn't happen. Um, and so how do we do that? I think that's one of the big challenges because I do think we're moving, hopefully, from an area, era of sort of employee surveillance, as Kevin's alluding to, to player or athlete empowerment. Um, I don't want to flag you for injury and not tell you about it. I want, to, I want your buy-in. I want you to be in these pitching labs or in these movement labs and understand your own body in new ways. Sure. Uh, and that's, you could screw it up. And I think analytics groups have screwed it up more than they've got it right over the last 10 years. Um, you have a background in public health, Kathy, right? Yes. So, I mean, do you grapple with this as a bioethical issue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's... If teams or anybody was going to start actually keeping track of this healthcare data in a like larger at scale way, that is now PHI, and you are you have to have almost like HIPAA compliance, and there's all of these layers that you have to add on top of it. And you know you think it's bad if I leak you know what Rui is shooting in our practice gym, you know like that like that's bad enough. If I was suddenly leaking you know his medical record, oh my God, like that that's not just I'm in trouble with the league. I'm now in trouble with the law. Um, so it, it is it is a is a thing that I grapple with a lot. And you know, I talk to our medical staff and I talk to our player performance people all the time and they're really interested in this because I think you know, there is this like, I want to help these guys be healthier. I want to help them perform better. I want to understand all of this. And so I think this is to Kirk's point of like, what is that conduit? And it is not me talking to those players directly. It is me talking to our trainers. It is me yep. talking to our physicians and helping understand the questions that they have. It isn't me saying, oh, I saw a bunch of stuff. Right. It's them coming with their specific questions and me trying to help answer them. So Thomas Bryant has an in, had an injury. Okay, what does the literature say on that type of injury? Um, 
You know, what do we think about load management? What about all of this other stuff that is, is not me coming at it from like, I would hope a slightly more expert point of view given my background in public health and biostatistics, but certainly nothing compared to the people who have the actual questions they want to test. And so that, that's, that's how it works. And if you can continue to work that way and you can build that trust, then we can get there. But it is very scary to think of you just give a bunch of analysts, a bunch of healthcare data and a bunch of injury data and say, try to predict who's going to have an ACL tear in the next month. And like, you can't. You just crushed Kirk's dreams. There. <laughs> First of all, let me reframe this. I don't dream. I dream about uh, helping an athlete understand if they're at risk for something. I'm not sitting here no, building models to predict but, but, catastrophic injuries. But they'll but there always are... see it as even even Bob. To your point, if like I, I think a guy is tired in a game, if you say to him, "Hey, you look tired. I'm going to pull you out," they're going to be like, "The fuck I am." Yeah. Right. Let me keep playing. X. I mean, th that's what I was going to ask Allison. All right, here's a scenario. X. And, and this happened in Milwaukee, right? Where they have a great sports science department. All right, Giannis, you're good in five minutes spurts, right? Like, like we're determining now that, hey, there are a lot of players who actually can be maximized by not, oh, you play the second quarter from the eight minute mark, you come back into that. Like, all right, how, and I've kind of asked you this several different times, but this is in different capacities though. Like, like the fuck you can is, is, is the answer um, that creates great tension between coach and player. So, all right, walk me through mediating that situation. Um, it's super hard. It, it's super hard. It's a, it's a difficult conversation because you can't dictate, you don't really know. Maybe over time you can see a, a player may or may not be good in, in certain spurts, but so much goes into what, what makes a player good in those spurts, like the game situation, the five that's on the court, um, the particular game. So I think game to game, it's, it's certainly tougher to have those conversations. Maybe over time you can. Uh, I don't know, I don't have a super answer other than that one. I know players wanna play and, and they, want, they wanna stats because they're associated with getting better contracts. So it's a hard conversation. I mean, the one interesting thing is how much star players have embraced the load management DNP rest, um, <laughs> which kind of runs counter to that, right? Like I wanna play. Right. Um, is that like, I mean, that, that strikes me as a recipe for success. However that was sold to players, like, it was successful. Some guys have not bought into that. LeBron James famously is, right. is, is, is but right. Tim Duncan obviously has. I can, you can name a Kawhi. handful of others. Guys who are in their contract here probably don't buy into it nearly as much <laughs> as guys who have already got like year two of their five-year, you know, super max or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in, again, I think this is one of the big growth areas for our domain is this exact kind of conversation, Kevin. Um, you alluded to this earlier. Have we maxed out tracking data, live tracking data? I think we've maxed out all the data. Like, there's really not that much data that you need. This isn't like, we're splitting the atom here. It's a, it's a basketball game, yeah? How much, how, much, how much data do you really need? Like, honestly, like, there's people, and, and to your point, in terms of, like, if you tell a player, like, people don't realize what you see is data. Like, a coach can see that a player's tired. That's data. You might not need right. to see that, oh, his heart rate variability has gone up by 6.7%. Like, you don't really need that much data. So it's just a question of, like, I don't know, data's everywhere in our lives. Like every, every one of us is carrying around a phone with us everywhere. Like we're all worried about all these privacy violations. You're carrying around the, all this data and there's like an overwhelming amount of data. And so we've, yeah, for sure, sure we've maxed it out. You can improve around the edges, but you're not really gonna, 
the end of the day, it's a human game. These, these, they're the best in the world at what they're doing, and giving them a little bit more data is not going to really make that much of a difference, in my opinion. It might help no. a player not get injured. It might help them improve their, like when baseball, that type of stuff, but that's not something the average analytics department's going to be doing. That's a biomechanics expert's going to be doing that. Right. That's, a, that's more of a, a coaching thing than an analytics thing, in so my opinion. Kathy should quit her job. I mean, I do a lot of stuff. But so if, if that part I, I can't do anymore, that's fine. There's plenty more. <laughs> Tell the story. So, so I, I was hanging out with Kathy uh, on Thursday night, and I was like, hey, Kurt is, is substituting. This is supposed to be, you're supposed to be Daryl. So you could channel Daryl. Sorry, guys. <laughs> next 17 minutes. Um, but you told me that. I have, I have this, I'm like, what happened? He's like, oh, I've never actually, it wasn't no, I don't him. want to, no, so, this is, okay. it kind of relates I, to the last comment. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, Kirk, to put you on blast like they this. They weren't but sitting beside each other right now. <laughs> oh, no, this it's not too late to change Look course. Look at his body language, by the way. He's all the way. Well, he told me last night that this <laughs> was, was going to happen. I don't yeah, know what so, it's so, about so, to I, be. I, 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 it, it's, it's humorous, but I think it'll, it, it has a good point to it. So um, I'm a statistician by training, and I was at the joint statistical meetings, um, which is the big gathering of all statisticians in North America uh, in Boston in 2014. So I was in grad school, it was like my second year of grad school. And my friend says, hey, there's a, there's a whole session on, on sports statistics, we should go. And I was like, great, this is awesome, which is like probably the moment that I started actually thinking I could really do this as a career. So watershed moment. And I go and Kirk's giving a talk and Luke Bourne's giving a talk and Dan Cervone and all these like, and it was amazing and it was awesome and it was great. But the takeaway from the speakers was, don't try to do this as a career. Nobody will listen to you on a team. It's all just a bunch of snake oil salesmen. Go get a real job, make a bunch of money, and buy season tickets. Don't do this. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll go into public health. I'll go, you know, like. Yeah. Sounds work. like great advice. And then, right, seriously, where, then, where was no, the But it's just like, and then a couple of years, like a year later, two years later, Kirk signs with the Spurs. And I was like, Kirk Goldsberry lied to me. <laughs> um, but, but to the point, like in that room, I can think of off the top of my head like 10 people who are, you know, statisticians who then went on to work for teams or for the league. That is where I met Mike Lopez, who is the head of analytics for the NFL now, and all of these other people. And so, in fact, it is now a thing that you can do. Mm -hmm. And there are now all these, like, young students coming up, and there are conferences across the country. It is not just JSM. It is not just Sloan. It is not just Nessus. There are these small conferences all over the place that you can go and you can meet people and you can talk about interesting advanced statistical techniques being applied to interesting sports questions. And that makes me really excited. Yeah. And so like, Kirk, you might've lied to me then, but, <laughs> and, and maybe you're saying it's still true now, but like the, 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 you know, it has totally changed. And that makes me so happy and so excited. Oh, that's good. I, I, I would just say that's, that's what I always tell people is my career hasn't been insane in the last 10 years because the market for this job and for these roles has been wild. It is, the market itself has pulled me around from academics to ESPN to the team side or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it's, and in the next 10 years, it's going to be another bunch of changes that are yeah. somewhat predictable. There were no roles for, for these conduit type of people. That, that's going to happen, as we already mentioned, biomechanics. Uh, is going to creep its way into basketball operations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's more and more people sitting on the bench as coaches who have right. analytics backgrounds, yeah. and you know, so it's not just that my conduit to you know from the medical side, but also like Dean Oliver is you know sitting on our bench, and you know I'm not going to go and talk to our players about shooting, but he is, mm. and and this is more and more on on teams are having this and. That just makes me very happy. I mean, I think everybody should know more statistics, but you know, it's like, it's a good start. Yeah. Although it's interesting because if you're 20 years old and sitting out there, what I hear some of y'all saying is, hey, go in, don't go into econ, go into pre-med. 
Um, I mean, I think you should go with just statistics. How about just doing NFTs? Seems like that's. Oh God. Oh, there oh. we go. Oh, there no, we go. No, no, we're not. No. <laughs> is it? Are you doing the crypto session? No. I'm oh, okay. Absolutely not. Uh, so looking to the future, I mean, one thing I've been hearing since I started this career is basketball is so far behind baseball. Like, yes. So that's true. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. First of all, for a variety of reasons, one, baseball is easier to analyze. It's a lot of closed tasks yeah, for there's, athletes. There's very little interaction effect in baseball, but yep. it's a lot simpler. I don't know that it's that, I don't, I don't know that it's that far ahead. Probably maybe like the most advanced groups in basketball and like the real cutting edge is catching up very quickly. But in terms of like how widespread it is, I mean like the smallest analytic group in an MLB team is bigger than the biggest group in basketball yeah. and, and how pervasive it is within the whole organization, I would say. And they have they have arms and legs in their player tracking data set already and like just stuff yeah. like that. They're like always the Hawkeye cameras catch the spin of the ball in yeah. game. I mean, that's awesome. I think also the sport itself just translates more to statistics like everyone grew up looking at like the, the actual I mean, the actual statistics for for, for baseball or like the players batting average or all that stuff is like kind of in imbued into the culture of the sport in some yeah. ways. You can probably thank Bill James for that. And even, yeah, for sure. Like they, they were the first ones to really have more of the statistical stuff in their telecasts. And, and, and yeah. there's a lot of downtime in watching I mean, a baseball games. Even, game even Daryl, like tutored, tutored uh, did internships with Bill. I, I forget the relationship. They worked for Stats Inc. They worked together. Yeah. And so obviously Daryl's going to go down as one of the more innovative analytical thinkers in basketball. And, you know, he, he borrowed a lot from, from Bill James in, in baseball. I think football is going to catch us. Football is so popular, and the analytics. Football is the data, so the, the amount of games you play. That's the one thing that baseball has going for it also, so sample sizes yeah. are, are a Massive. lot larger. I, I just still think that like, just because of how popular football is and how public their data is, that like, all of the like, young, ravenous people who want to work on something and who have ideas have this like, incredibly rich data just freely accessible to them in the way that they don't in basketball. And so a lot of the like, really exciting ideas are more public, and they're able to talk about it more, whereas in basketball, we're all sort of like, closed off as soon as we start working for teams. And it's not, it's, I, I think basketball is also exploding a lot. And like, obviously I'm here and I love it. But I do think that, that football as well is coming up in hockey. You know, they have tracking and everything too. Um, I mean, I think every sport is, is pushing a lot. Um, well, so we talked about biomechanics with regard to everything from the neck down. Mm -hmm. Is there brain? Like, are we going to be talking? Do you, is, do you it cannot even be measured. Too? I don't do that, man. Yeah, I don't do that. Okay. <laughs> Wrong panel. <laughs> no clue. No clue? No clue. I mean, talk to the athlete. Like, uh, is it something we can measure? Is it, you know, what gets measured gets managed? I think it's a fair question. What is, what is the analytical future of knowing an athlete's mindset or? I think like part of the problem is in terms of like for analytics is, is you're, you're trying to, everything you can measure is somehow the, in the domain of analytics experts, which we're not. Like yeah. none of us know anything about any, like with the exception of Kirk and you've worked in public medicine. Like I don't, I didn't ever deal with like, there's yeah, you do some injury data analysis, but you're not trying to predict all this stuff. And so, you know, know what you know and know what you don't know. And I think none of us know anything about the brain. Is it okay not to measure yeah. something? But, but even if like we came yeah. up with some measure I right so. now, you couldn't backfill it to all the like historic stuff, so it wouldn't be useful until we had like a sufficiently large data set. And then even then, then, it, then that gets into the same issue we were having about before, which is like, are they gonna let, do the players want us measuring their mindset and no. you know, giving them a smaller contract because like you're not fierce enough or like you don't have enough heart. And again, Alice's point about, would you want your employer doing this, Kevin? Like, <laughs> no. no, do you want ESPN to come in and put you into some sort of 
like brain scan and be like, you're not clutch, man. I'm not. So, so, and so here's sort of a horribly amateurish example. I was talking to a former number one pick and I was just saying, hey, what were the meetings like? Like, you know, I have a good idea of the workouts and the combines, but like when you're sitting there, like inter being interviewed, he's like, yeah, there was a psychologist and he gave me this scenario where he said, you're driving toward a traffic light. It turns yellow. Do you A, speed through it, or B, do you like, hold up, stop. And I said, well, what did you answer? He's like, well, my first thought was, what do they want me to answer? Because, and he's like, that was a little bit screwing in my mind because on one hand, they want me to be aggressive, right? Like that, are they measuring aggressiveness that they want you to attack? Um, go through the light. On the other hand, they're obviously, you know, you don't want to break the law and, and, and whatever. And he didn't even remember what he answered. But his whole thing was, I don't know what they were trying to measure. I actually brought this up to a neurologist a couple months ago who works with EPL soccer teams. He was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but yet it was the, huh? It's situational. It depends. You have a doctor's appointment. Yeah, right. Um, you there any other are not in a rush. Three o'clock uh, in the morning and I'm in the middle exactly, of nowhere. So. Like, didn't, but didn't the Celtics have like, maybe it predates your, but weren't they, didn't they have like the brain type guy? And that was a big part of their draft model. Definitely predates me. I have no. Company. I think Danny was a big. Theo Epstein's big, big into neuroscouting. I think is one of the companies that does kind of this stuff. But there was a brain type guy. They answer a question. It was like, what is your, you know, ENT, whatever that type of. I think that was a big part of their. It's creepy, man. Let's be honest. Some of this yeah. stuff is gonna go creepy, and a lot of us are just not gonna go that go there. And 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 people, different people are gonna draw the lines in different places. People might say what I'm trying to do with athletes' bodies is, is creepy, and, and I respect that, but I, I don't think that. And with this neuroscouting stuff, I could definitely see somebody concluding that this is a little too much. It'd just be better off getting their browser history, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why, why are you trying fact. to <laughs> just get their browser history on the dark web or something, implant some, you know, that's probably the best way to get all the information you're looking for if you really want to up the creep factor. There's nothing like wrestling with a moral dilemma. Um, Wait, I have a question for Allison. Uh, Y'all have had like two seasons in one season this year. I think you started off kind of uh, uneven, let's say. And, okay. and now you are, are, are honestly when it might be the hottest team in the NBA over the last two months. Let's talk about the why from your perspective. Why, what's happened there? Why has that happened? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, the simple answer is the season is super long mm -hmm. and a lot can happen in a season. I mean, you look at our organization, like, Factually, we had a, you know, a leadership change. Yeah. We had a lot of new staff members. Um, we've had players. Um, players have matured. It took time for players to gel. Um, it's just a lot of different factors that have contributed to this late season surge, I would say. Not a lot of numbers. In the beginning of the season, everyone was talking about how awful your switching defense is. Now everyone's <laughs> like, how great is this switching I mean, defense? If, imagine you just met someone and you're expected yeah. to you know, play beautiful music Early, early in your meeting, it's it's super difficult. Yeah, it's super difficult. So, and you know, our coach came from the Olympics. Our mm -hmm. one of our star players was at the Olympics. Didn't have a lot of rest, so on and so forth. There are so many factors. Yeah. So the assumption to be drawn is, the input of the analytics team will be inversely proportional <clears throat> to the performance and outcomes the team is. If you're measuring an analytics team on a game by game basis, you're doing it wrong. That's a really small sample size. It is about like sustained growth over a long period of time. Um, 
this, I might ask you a too sensitive question. Um, when the things were going great at the beginning of the year. They were going great at the right? beginning of the year. Was there any sense for you that this is unsustainable? Um, or it's like, hey, th this is... I guess no comment. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's what I figured. Um, right, what else can analytics not answer? It will never be able to answer. You know, I, and Bob and I were talking about this beforehand, the draft is still pseudoscience at best in trying to project which 17 or 18 or 19 year old athlete is gonna be a great 26 year old athlete is very difficult. Um, and when. And, and when. when. It's just, yeah. And there's so many reasons for that. Uh, I, I'm working on this feature for the draft. Like this so thing. what are you thinking about? No, I mean, I think there are any number of answers. It's, it's, it's obviously, it's not a mono cause, right? I think teams are duped by bad intel. Um, I think one of the things I'm hearing is players are younger than ever. So when you're drawing on the information, you're only getting a year of college and high school. So, so in terms of sample size, like you just, it's much harder to do that than glean whatever you can from a four-year person. The other thing is the variance of experience. He's like, you know, I mean, one assistant GM told me, look, you know, it used to be, hey, we, we're looking at division one basketball right. players. Now we're looking at guys who grew up in Cameroon. We're looking at guys who grew up in the Australian system, obviously Europe, and even those leagues are sort of variable. And so the apples to apples versus apples to oranges. Um, but the number one thing is we can't predict the future. Is that's what I hear. And, and, and kind of the heuristic I talked about with this uh, other executive was, okay, let's say we went into a time machine, you and me, and we went back to 2012. And we are armed with all the information about how the game is played, right? And they're gonna believe us, they know that we're for real. And we go to 30 draft rooms in April and May and say, all right, let me tell you how NBA basketball is gonna look in 2022. And then we left and went back home. How many of those draft rooms would say, oh shit, okay, we need to completely reorder and reevaluate. Like Draymond Green, that guy out of Michigan State, kind of undersized savant, oh yeah, that guy's gonna be really useful. Um, whereas he was probably marginally useful in 2012, the way the game was being played. So the number one answer I'm getting, or the, I would say the number one answer, the most intelligent answer I'm getting is we're crappy at the draft because people can't predict the future. No one knows what basketball in the NBA is gonna look like in 2028. And I thought that was really interesting. Was that a question? No, it's not a question. He, I'm answering his question. I, I joined the fray here. Um, okay, last thing. I told you about the 2012 research papers. Mm -hmm. Tell me the 2032 research papers you expect to be at this conference um, being authored and winning awards. I, I hope I mean, th th those papers seem somewhat similar to what we're seeing today. And like, I don't know, I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see variations on a theme. Reproducibility is an important part of science. And if people continue to do the same research on new data and show that those trends continue, I think that would be great. I would be happy to see if there's just continually more papers on, you know, quantifying shooting and just, you know, like shooting has changed, it will continue to change. Like, I see no reason why 10 years from now we won't have similar papers. 
Um, shooting performance or shooting mechanics? Or oh, I mean, all, like all of the above. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I think to Bob's earlier point of like, to some extent, we've kind of maxed out and there's going to be a lot of this marginal stuff and it's going to be like a better method of measuring something that we've been measuring previously or again, validating it or, or getting additional amounts of data or saying like, oh, hey, something has changed. I think, for example, in baseball, which is like, I've always been really interested in the infield shift. And I remember like 10 years ago, I was like, teams are not shifting enough. Right. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be the next big thing. And then I, you know, I was in grad school and I was lazy and I didn't actually do anything about it. And now there's all this shifting. Yeah. And, if you, and if you apply you know, some of these methods to that old data, you'd be like, wow, shifting is really inefficient. They should be doing it more. And if you applied it to today's data, you might be like, okay, like, there might be some, some more gains, but it, it's really changed. And so you could have a shifting paper 10 years ago and a shifting paper today, and they would still be very interesting. Well, in some respects, the MBA, like nobody posts up. <laughs> like there was a collective realization that's a really, with a few exceptions, that's a lousy set. Is big guy, hand in the air, feet in the ball. Like there were very few. People. That's because the game was played a lot bigger back then. Like right. now, if you now that everyone's playing so small, a post up might be more efficient. So as but, as the landscape changes, like all this stuff is game theory optimal. So like if everyone's playing small, then the Cavs can have, succeed by being the only big team because they're they're an outlier in the rest of the league. Whereas everyone else is trying to perfect small ball, and now you, you're playing this one team two to three times a year who's got like a bunch of big players playing. I think in 10 years we'll be reading about is the three-point shot still the future of basketball <laughs> because it hasn't really caught on yet. It, you know, it has, but it hasn't. So it's like what respect. I mean, people are still debating it. Like you used to tune on TNT every day, and they're still talking about like, oh, they took too many threes. This is too many three-point shots. Like they only need a three. two right now. What's that? Like, or like they, they only need a two. They don't need a three in this situation. And yeah, like, yeah. God. And there's so still me and Bob debate. share that one when teams down by one and there's players shooting threes to win the game. Yeah, yeah you, you that. that happens so much. I, I read though that it's a lot easier. I, I read this study somewhere where it's a lot easier to control the time remaining on a three-point shot than it is on like a drive to yeah, the basket. For sure. so it makes sense. You maximize that last shot ability. But oh. analytics is agnostic, Kevin. Like we don't have an agenda. Like, I do. Traditional sports agenda. analytics. <laughs> this guy's like, talking about Bob it. Bob has Big a very, agenda. you know, Bob's backstory for those who don't know it is he made a lot of money gambling on the NBA. He had a very solid uh, motivation and a clear objective. Uh, but he, he wasn't trying to dictate the future of the sport. He was trying to find edges, edges, which is sort of the money ball era. Right. What I'm hopeful for those papers to be in 2032 is to bring that power to human development, athlete development, to help players get better, whether it's a skill or sports science, like more fit, wellness. That's where I really want to see this going, because I think this data can be creepy if it's kept away from athletes right. and is creepy. Uh, and I really think... As, as we get more conduits in the business, the future is helping athletes and human beings perform uh, better at the things they want. And to sleep science is a good example of that. Great example. Not in, it, it is bio, it's, it's, it's biometrics. It's not yeah. something. Did you say yeah. not invasive? To tell, to say, hey, we're not going to take a red eye home. We're gonna oh, stay right. overnight in Los Angeles. Right. Um, hey, we are going to sh move shoot around sure. till noon mm -hmm. or, or, or practice till noon because we are now seeing that, you know, there was that famous, you know, kind of, someone did a, I think. Gerald Ma, the sleep right. study, yeah. And, and, you know, so, so that is an example of, hey, using data analytics that are bio-based, but not invasive. Yeah. It's just more prescriptive. All right, what do you want most? If, if you could say, hey, if you could order up, hmm. what would help you the most? I think, while I obviously, Shun questions about trying to figure out the, the mind. I think it would be super helpful to, you know, quantitatively figure out, qualitatively figure out how to, you know, 
how people mesh better together. I think at the end of the day, what's missing a lot of times from these conversations is this human element and how to maximize um, you know, a coaching staff or organizational culture, um, which are you know, of utmost importance and you know, success on the court, so. Well, so it's funny, um, one of my, my astrology is the Myers-Briggs. Like, I know it's junk science. You are looking, like you're horrified. No, no, I fully recognize that it's bullshit. Okay. But as long as it is, means something to you, then I won't take no, that no, away from you. No, no, but I love astrology. You called it astrology. Well, no, I, I love taxonomy. You, you didn't call it astrology, yeah, okay. Yeah. And a few years ago, I learned that Danny Ainge is really into Myers. That was, now, the, that was the brain guy I was talking about. Was right. <laughs> um, and, and I, like, we sort of had a fun conversation about it. You know, I, I threw out a player, Chris Paul, and he would have immediate things. Like, again, it's astrology. I get it. Yeah. But it, when you say chemistry, I think Danny has... The belief, I don't want to totally speak for him, but my impression is Danny has the belief that, hey, personality types can certain things mesh together right. and, and that you want a, a balance or you want, you know, again, you're, you're horrified. It, no, it, like, cause I think you're getting at an idea, which is that like, if you could properly measure this, there would be some way of like optimizing a combination. And like, I'm not opposed to that. I think that actually measuring it accurately, especially because it's about like, I could tell you, like what if I lied, like you didn't actually know when you were born and I said like, oh, you're not a Sagittarius, you're a Taurus or whatever. And like, and then you would like that placebo effect would have a difference. But so, so there's some level of that, but I do think there is some idea that like, if we could measure these things, the thing is to be able to tell if there is a difference, you have to have a lot of data on it. You have to have this like at scale before you can tell, especially these subtle differences of trying to like optimize a small roster. And, and so again, it's not, it's not that I don't believe in it. I just think this idea that like, it's going to take a while before we can say things really conclusively. Yeah. Any papers you want to see? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's take questions. Let's take questions. Let's see. Twitter questions. Refresh. I, while you're going through that, I will say yes. one other thing. You, you made this comment about like we can't predict the future, and like I mean, in some ways we have done a fairly good job of predicting things. I think Bob has made a whole career off of predicting things well. And the question is is not so much like what do I think the outcome is going to be? Because if I went to Coach West and I said like we're going to lose to the Pacers tomorrow, you know, with a really high probability, he wouldn't be like, okay, cool, thanks for letting me know. The question would be, well, what do we do to change that? What, what can we then do to yeah. increase our probability of winning? I, I've, I've often said that like. Nobody in sports actually cares about prediction outside of gamblers. Because anybody who's actually on a team is going to then want to ask the why, and they're going to want to change that prediction. Yeah. And so like, just literally knowing what the predicted outcome is is not useful for us as a team. It is about how do we increase the, the chance of winning? How do we like, yeah, increase can, the probability what, what that this... To shift the prediction. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways, it's about just building a really good prediction model that accounts for all of these things and then changing the inputs and seeing what the predicted outcome changes to. But there's a lot of other methods there as well. And so I guess the papers that I would want to see 10 years from now are causal inference. <laughs> I'm Causal Kathy on Twitter. What's up? Um, all right, so let me see. Um, time, what, what, which one do I like? Uh, what is the future of analytics as they apply to teams and players in the youth systems below college? Obviously, none of you work in the youth systems. Doesn't have. Yeah, let me ask, because this is a point I wanted to make. Is one of the issues, like when Michael Lewis really framed the endeavor of analytics in Moneyball, it was always something that the front offices would sort of apply to a roster of players, right, and strategy. 
there's an increasing thing with youth sports and in general with teams, there's a trust issue between the player and the employer. Uh, and I think one thing that doesn't come up enough is the application of analytics outside of the team environment, say with a player and, a, and his own trainer. Um, so say Stephen Curry and his shooting coach, Brandon Payne, they use a lot of numbers that the Warriors never see. Uh, and that's a very different dynamic, Kevin. Um, and I think Moneyball was great, but it really framed analytics as something that Billy Bean would do to find Kevin Euclid in a way that athletes should be thinking more about relationships outside of the team environment with analytics. And I think that's underreported. And in youth sports, I think a lot of things are happening where there are opportunities for development for, for athletes that have nothing to do with this power dynamic between the employer and the employee. Um, and I think whether it's a NOAA sensor, for those of you who know, the, the NOAA sensor in a gym measures the, the in-ring data, or like I said, the aforementioned like pitching labs, a lot of these are outside of the team environment now um, for player development. I think that's a big future thing to consider. We might be in a world where, yeah, all this stuff is going on, but it's Drew Hanlon, like a personal trainer. 100%. Who's doing it, because the ethical thing is the employer. It's not necessarily sort of the examination, or the, it's, it's who's doing the examination. Who's doing the examining? What's the power dynamic there? Um, well, studying Steph Curry's biomechanics help NBA players shoot better. Now, by 18 or 19, someone's shooting form is set. Way too much muscle memory already created. It will, uh, like, true or false or, or... I'm not the biomechanics guy. <laughs> I am not. I'm a geography professor. I'm a geographer, smart enough I'm to work with some biomechanists. <laughs> but uh, I think it would, because the why is what makes a player good. Um, one thing we've already learned is consistency, like shooting a free throw, for instance. You, you, you should have a very similar pattern of movement, and I'll be showing this at 11 a.m., but yeah, we need to understand and diagnose where in the process, maybe it's the base, maybe it's the core, maybe it's the launch phase of your shot where you're exhibiting an inconsistency. So I think when we understand that, we can help players pinpoint corrections. But so Allison, like, could you change your shot? Or is it like once you'd figured out your shot at age 17, it was never going to Yeah, that's, that's bullshit. I mean, I've watched, I've watched Tony Parker go from not being able to shoot. I watched Kawhi Leonard with Chip England go from not being able to shoot. Literally, the draft report for Kawhi Leonard coming out of San Diego State was like, man, this guy might be able to shoot corner three someday. Uh, he really can't do it now. And he changed his shot at age 19. He deserves a massive amount of credit. That's not easy to do. Um, but yeah, people tweak shots all the time. I mean, there's, didn't Tristan Thompson change his hand that he was shooting with in the middle of his career? Yeah, from left to right. How'd that yeah. go? He didn't see the, the recent, there was a yeah, post about a, it recently. Yeah. Well, he just shot an air ball and then banked in one a couple days ago, so I don't know that he's the guy I want to be talking example. about. <laughs> there's no shortage of examples of people who have changed their shots between uh, in what we call NBA puberty, like that first four years of your contract. Um, Oh, this is interesting. Uh, how do you deal with the frustration of your work? Just good work you know is good work, just not being implemented at all. Like the beating against the head, the why am I here? Like, how do you deal with a cold spell like that? I used to work in public health <laughs> okay. on infectious disease epidemiology. So I'm now in a space where when things go wrong, it's fine. Whereas the rest of the world, like if I, if I was still in that same space, I'd be in a much darker place right now. <laughs> so 
I, it's fine for me. <laughs> I think gambling kind of trains you for that. That was like the one thing I was kind of blown away by was how much people couldn't handle the variance game to game, like in the NBA. Like I've like, why did we lose? Well, we didn't make shots. Sometimes it happens. It's just like there's sometimes there isn't really like a grand analytical story for why you missed, why you lost a game. And so I think, I think also a lot of people are uh, in situations where they're trying to get ahead. So for me, it didn't really apply. I was, it didn't. I mean, I, I don't think I had like a ton of success in terms of like working in a culture that I really enjoyed. But it wasn't super frustrating either because I, you know, dealt with gambling my whole life, where you're just kind of used to losing like 40. 5% of the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm, this is not my space, but I always, like, my biggest pet peeve is the 50-50 balls. There's no such thing as a 50-50 ball. And there's no such team as a team that is better at getting the 50. There might be, I mean, in terms, but, but the idea that there's a 50-50 ball just kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. It's like one of the kind of tropes that I don't, I don't love. Um, me? Yeah. We were playing Phoenix one time, to Bob's point, and we were good and they were bad. Those were different times as the Spurs. And they beat us, and Pop wanted to light up the whole team because we just lost. But if you look at one of the cool metrics that Second Spectrum is, is this shot quality metric. Yeah. And to Bob's point, you know, you go into Pop and you're like, hey, there's gonna be three games a year, maybe 10 games a year, where they just got lucky on those threes and nobody was playing bad defense. This is not the game to light up Danny Green or Kawhi or whoever it is for not getting there. Yeah, what year was that? I don't remember, it was like 2017 or something. Now like that 10 game thing is probably like what, 30, 30 some odd games a year? Where you yeah, talk about that. So yeah, how, how has that three point shot changed the variance for gamblers or for coaches? Like the, should I get mad at my team or not? Yeah, I think the, the expected shot quality thing was huge for us because we were able to present it to, like on a report they could see post-game. And so they'd look at it and they'd be like, oh, we were supposed to shoot this and we shot that. And I think it kind of like, you know, if you're dealing with a coach who's like 10 Mountain Dews deep, like on average, <laughs> <laughs> on average day, like having that number to just kind of tell you to chill out was like pretty good, I, th I thought. Yeah, no, it, it is if they buy into it. So this is a number that sort of projects your points per shot or effective yeah. field goal percentage on an ensemble of, of, or a constellation of shots. And there's going to be nights where you go three for 20 or whatever. And that's just as Bob knows better than anybody. Yeah, we need to discuss the law of diminishing return on Rick Carlisle's seventh Mountain Dew of the day. Um, so last question is, how do you deal with a player, to their point, who's just ice cold for no reason other than variance or, or, or chance? Or we don't know yet, right? Like right. We, don't, we don't have the biomechanics. So how do you deal with a player who's just going through like a terrible slump? Not to no fault of their own, but, but again, subject to sort of the, the cruel variances of, of basketball. I mean, as a player, as a former player, you understand you know, you have to not kind of vacillate with the ebbs and flows of a season. Um, you know, there are going to be spells or moments like that, but you, as a, a culture, you stay positive, you encourage, um, and you kind of rely on, you know, your internal support to hopefully get better. Um, mm. But definitely don't dwell on it because that will only exacerbate it. Uh, closing thoughts, anybody? It was a good thing the Miami Heat didn't like bench Duncan Robinson, who started off the season really poorly and is one of yeah. the best shooters. But it, it, Reggie Bullock, yeah, he started off the season really poorly. And it's it's interesting because at some point you're like, is this real or not? And I don't know how to answer that question. It's not real. 
all a mirage. Sometimes <laughs> it's all a mirage. We're a simulation. <laughs> it's it was a simulation. That. Oh yeah, we were talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, that's a hard question, Kevin. I don't, yeah. I don't have a good answer. I mean, I, 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 I try to look at other information, right? Which is like you have some prior and you're updating it with, with new data that's coming in. And sometimes that prior is based off of like what they're shooting in the gym, right? And so somebody's really cold in a game and you can say like, well, you were really hot last season and you, you know, your numbers in the gym are exactly the same and like nothing seems to have changed. Um, or you could just blame it on the new ball. Yeah, and you blame it on the new ball, and you can say like, okay, well, let's let's look at where you were shooting with the old ball and with the new ball, and maybe it is in your head, and maybe you just like they just need permission to like not feel so bad about it. I, like I, again, I'm not having those conversations with with the yeah. with the players, but you know the people that I talk to are, and they've asked those questions of like, is there evidence to suggest that they've actually gotten worse? And it's like, well, no, like every, you know everything else that we see, and so like. You know, I always come at this from the numbers. They're like, well, the numbers say it should be fine. And I know that as a human, you can't like, just be like, well, it'll be OK. Um, but maybe the numbers can help you feel that way. Um, you know. Cool. Thank you. This was great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.